three, two, one. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Trevor Magnotti and this is the Thick Jacked Frames podcast for the Swords NBA Draft podcast. The 2019 NBA Draft is three months away now and your Cleveland Cavaliers are set to pick third and 26 as we record a little late this week today on Tuesday afternoon. Today's goals are simple. We're going to break down some major things we saw in the NCAA tournament's opening weekend, talk about a prospect who's flown under the Cavs' radar that you should watch in the Sweet 16 and beyond, and then give you your watch guide for the tournament's second weekend. The NCAA tournament has been pretty much as expected. The top two teams in each region advance to the Sweet 16. Oregon's our only double-digit seed to make the Sweet 16 as well. They're likely to get ground into the dirt by the Virginia defense, so even they probably won't be sticking around long. So no true upsets here. We're truly getting the blue bloods, and that's exciting, but it's made for a pretty boring open weekend, or opening weekend for the most part. There was still exciting moments, though. Grant Williams almost single-handedly disassembling an Iowa upset bid stands out. So does the Duke-UCF game, which was kind of drunk, but fun drunk, and showcased Zion Williamson making clutch play after clutch play. An opening weekend was a coming out party for several prospects. I have five memorable guys that we're going to start off with talking about how they either brought their talent to light on national stage or solidified their standing as prospects. This is far from a complete list to everybody who popped over the first weekend, but these five names are the true winners of last Thursday through Sunday. So the first one we have to talk about is obviously Brandon Clark of Gonzaga. You If you paid any attention to the tournament, you probably saw Clark's 36.8 rebound, 3 assist, 5 block explosion as Gonzaga just destroyed Baylor in the second round on Saturday. He had probably the most impressive game of the tournament so far of really anybody, and it was nice to see him come out and have a really dominant performance in a way that he really hasn't this year. He's a guy who has lingered around the bottom half the first round for most of the year, kind of from the NBA's perspective, but is a firm lottery prospect in my eyes, and I think proved he has a little bit more upside than teams have kind of seen so far. That was a really big moment for him. In particular, really exciting to see his finishing look as good as it did. Um, He got a lot of opportunities kind of in the mid post and uh, on cuts and did a really good job finishing against contact there. Also just brought the the defense that he always brings game in and game out to be able to hold that much of an offensive load as he did and still perform at that high of a level on defense really paints a picture of what he's about as a prospect. He's one of the most consistent players in college basketball this year. You always know what you're going to get from him. And I think that this game really showed kind of the extent to how that can translate into positively impacting a game. So we'll keep an eye on him going into the Sweet 16 and hopefully beyond. Um, But he definitely was the biggest winner of this week. Next guy is a guy who you probably didn't notice too much because he played in a blowout game that his team was on the receiving end of. Um, Oklahoma dismantled Ole Miss on Friday, but Terrence Davis of Ole Miss is a guy that I've been high on for a little while now, and he had a very strong game in that Oklahoma game, particularly in the first half. He finished with 17 points, five rebounds, and six assists, had some really nice drives, and showed kind of the array of his finishing profile against Oklahoma's defense. I think that he's a guy who improved his stock a little bit this week because 
he really showed that he can playmake a little bit better than he has consistently over the course of the season. You know, he had six assists, was able to get his teammates involved, and really did a good job creating open looks and limited uh, limited opportunities for that Ole Miss offense because they were getting smothered for the most part by Oklahoma. But Davis was able to manufacture shots better than pretty much anybody else on their roster uh, for his teammates. And I think that that's a positive for him going forward. He's kind of a three and D type athletic slasher um, who I think is going to play a lot of two and three at the NBA level. And to be able to play at the two, he's going to have to be able to play make a little bit. So being able to see him do that was really impressive. And he's still a guy that I have kind of at the top of my second round. A guy who re- I've really been low on for most of the season, but kind of established himself as, as a firm draft prospect for me with his opening weekend was Tyler Hero. Um, Hero did not have a very strong scoring output in the opening weekend for Kentucky. He had 14 points in the win against Abilene Christian, didn't hit a single three though, and he's kind of known as a shooter, and then had a really rough uh, two of nine sh- shooting performance against Wofford to finish with nine points. But I really like seeing him deviate away from the three-point shot and be able to impact the game positively in ways that didn't just rely on his shooting. That's kind of been the knock on him this year. Is he's kind of a one-dimensional shooter, doesn't do a ton outside of that, and isn't really strong on the other end of the floor. Well, he did a good job to show that that may not be the case in this weekend. You know, In the Abilene Christian game, he has a really good rebounding effort and is able to get to the rim on, on some drives and I uh, perform well on some on some cutting opportunities and was still able to positively contribute to Kentucky's offense despite not getting any clean looks from three. Then the Wofford game, really impressed with his defense. I really thought that Fletcher McGee was going to expose Hero a little bit. You heard me talk with Spencer Perlman last week that I thought that that was going to be the case, and it ended up being the opposite. McGee really performed well, really kind of shut down some open looks for McGee coming off screens, did a nice job tracking with him and bothering him off the catch, and got his playmaking involved a little bit on the offensive end as well, showed a little bit more in that regard, and I think that those are all positives for Hero. You know, he needs to be able to show that he can do more than just be a stationary shooter that can do some stuff off movement and I think that while I still might not take him in the 2019 draft I would like to see him come back to school I think I can definitely justify him being in the class and taking a flyer on him in the second round he's still a guy who kind of has a low ceiling and I think has some a lot of development to go to reach that ceiling but I think that you know he established this weekend that he's not just a shooter, and he looked very positive to me, even though the shot wasn't falling. Hopefully he can get that going in the next round as well. Next, we got to talk about the guy who kind of the mainstream took as the player of the weekend, and that was John Morant. Um, the numbers, very impressive. 17 points, 11 rebounds, 16 assists against Marquette. Obviously impressive anytime you can get a triple-double at the college level, and he was able to pull one off in the NCAA tournament. That doesn't happen every day. And then in the Florida State game, Murray State gets blown out, but we still get a positive John Morant game. 28 points, 5 rebounds, and 4 assists. Um you know, there's a lot of talk. Uh, Mark Stein of um, the New York Times tweets out on Thursday night during the Marquette game that 
he knows who's going to go number two in the NBA draft and that it's John Morant behind Zion Williamson. And I, I just don't feel like we actually learned that much about Morant over this opening weekend. You know, he had two very impressive games against power conference teams, and that always helps your draft stock as a lower-tier guy. But all of the issues that we saw with Morant throughout the season were present in this game as well. I mean, we saw that he played a little bit sped up at times, really was bothered by the length, particularly of... Florida State in the second round game, um, but also had some difficulty consistently making good decisions against Marquette as well. Um, You know, the shooting looked good and he was able to hit a lot of off the dribble stuff that he doesn't normally make, Um, hit five of six threes in the Florida State game, and that was positive. But uh, you get the mid range shots and they still don't look that great. And you know, defensively, still a little bit of a struggle as well. So, um, I was I thought that his performance was overall positive. I think that he's still a very good player and still a guy who is going is going to have star potential in the NBA. But I, I continue to revisit the same questions with him. We're going to break him down at a later date and really dive into the the positives and negatives of his game and his draft stock and why I don't think that this performance is really going to translate immediately. Um, but I think that for the most part, Morant didn't do anything too different from what I had seen previously in terms of his skill play in the college level in these two games. And that kind of worries me that he's getting blown up as the surefire number two now for some people because I still think there's a lot of issues that need to be thought over when you're considering drafting John Morant. Um, So positive weekend for him, but I'm not super thrilled with the overall body of work that we saw from him. And then the last guy we'll touch on real quickly before we take a break here is a guy who we talked about last week as well with Spencer. He had brought him up as a guy to watch, and he really delivered in Auburn's two games. It's Chuma Okeke, who has established himself to me firmly at the low low end of my first round. He, again, was a guy like Hero who didn't have a huge offensive weekend, but defensively was phenomenal in Auburn's two wins against New Mexico State and Kansas. 13 points, 5 rebounds, and 3 steals against New Mexico State, and then he turns around, has 12 points, 5 rebounds, 4 assists, and 4 steals against Kansas. He is just a very fundamentally sound defender and a guy who's going to be able to switch across multiple positions at the NBA level. Um, Has really good hands really it knows how to break up passing lanes and tie up guys in the lane and I think that he can be helpful enough on offense that I'm pretty confident about him as a potential rotation three four guy kind of along the lines of Grant Williams and Brandon Clark and the prospect we're going to break down in a little bit Ignis Brodzikis of Michigan all of those guys are very good very solid kind of positionally versatile 3-4 types who can do a little bit on both ends. And I think that Okeke firmly established himself in that same tier, being able to kind of do that at a higher level. We'll see if he can replicate that against a very hard test against UNC this weekend in the Sweet 16. But for right now, he's a guy that I firmly have at the end of my first round. So 
we're going to shift gears and we're going to go away from guys who really had strong weekends in the NCAA tournament opening weekend and go to a guy who really kind of disappointed but has an opportunity in the Sweet 16 the Elite Eight to really establish himself as a guy that the Cavs should be considering in the first round with their second pick. Um, we're going to be ba- right back talking about Ignis Brazdikis of Michigan here on Thick Jack Frames. All right, so let's jump in and talk about our prospect of the week. This is Ignis Brazdikis of Michigan. He is a Canadian national who has, or who's ties to Lithuania. Um, his parents are Lithuanian, and I believe he does have a Lithuanian passport. Can play, uh, is able to play for them as well. Um, he is a six-seven small forward who plays. A majority of starters minutes for Michigan, 215 pounds, 6'8 wingspan per draft express. That was a few years ago, that measurement, but it's about the best that we've got in terms of measuring his wingspan. So not super long, but a big kind of muscular three type is what we're getting with Iggy. His stats, 29.5 minutes per game, 14.8 points, 5.2 rebounds, and 0.9 assists, 46% shooting from the field, 41% from three, and 30 or and 77% from the line. Your representative game to watch Brazdikis. I like the Big Ten title game for this because you kind of get a good estimation of his strengths and weaknesses. Going against Matt McQuaid of Michigan State, he had 19 points on six of 13 shooting, six rebounds, one assist. Played some good defense on McQuaid in Michigan's loss there. His NCAA tournament. Opening weekend, not exactly the strongest. Um, was kind of just there in the first round game against Montana. 14 points, 7 rebounds, an assist and a steal on 4 of 10 shooting. And then comes out against Florida and threw up probably one of the biggest duds among prospects in that first weekend. 5 points, 2 of 8 shooting. Really doesn't impact the game too much. Luckily didn't have to as for, as Michigan cruised against the Gators. Um, so let's jump in and talk a little bit about why I think that he is a good fit here for the Cavs with that 26 pick. Um, he is a guy who is going to offer most of his strength on offense. He is Kind of a play finisher. Yeah, you have to think of him as kind of like a complimentary piece, but he is a very strong play finisher at the college level. And what I mean by that is he is a guy who is going to finish well at the rim, is going to find open space in the in the half court, and does a really good job of taking advantage of a bent defense and capitalizing on it. He is really good going towards the rim downhill uh, in particular. He has really good short area burst, meaning that he is able to accelerate really quickly when he gets a guy off balance. Most of the time that's going to come off of a dribble handoff or rotating around the, uh, around the perimeter where he catches the ball at the wing and immediately bursts off of the catch into a drive into the lane and is able to get past his man initially and kind of explode up into the basket. He has really good craft around the rim as well. He's a left-hander and does a really good job finishing with either hand, which is really exciting. A lot of lefties don't really have a dominant right hand to complement that. Brazdikis is a guy who definitely does, and he uses both hands very well and has a really good touch around the rim. He's not 
a high-level finisher. He's finishing at 55% at the rim this season per uh, the Stepien shot chart data, which is good, but not elite, not something that you would immediately project to being really good at the NBA level in the way like a Zion Williamson would. But he's a guy who is going to still, I think, be a positive finisher at the NBA level. In addition, he's a really good shooter off the off the move, um, has really good foundation on his jump shot. Um, he jumps forward into his shot, which is really nice to see. You know, he's prepared and is able to gather and go up straight up and down really easily, which which is nice. There's no kind of wasted motion in his jumper, which is always really good to see. Um, he The one complaint that I have in terms of his jumper is he doesn't do a good job of using his guide hand very well. He can kind of be a little over dominant on that aspect. And that's something that may have to get tweaked as he gets into the NBA level. But I really like kind of the foundation that he gives as an off movement shooter. He also has a very good handle, which is nice. You know, he's a he's a very crafty dribbler for his size. And while he is he can kind of get himself into trouble a little bit in that regard, when he's going towards the basket, he does have little ball fakes that he can use and does a really good job of attacking outside of a straight line, meaning he can kind of cross guys over. He can use little fakes and stuff to get him some open space, which is important because he doesn't have very good explosion in terms of his athleticism. And that's something that's going to be a problem for him at the NBA level. Um, that's probably one of his biggest offensive weaknesses is this is a guy who's going to be a play finisher and slasher, but he doesn't have the typical athleticism that we normally expect guys who are going to play that role to have at the NBA level. You know, when you think slasher, you think of guys with the athleticism of like a Zach Levine or Andrew Wiggins. Um, you think of guys like, um, guys like Andre Roberson, who, they don't necessarily have a ton of offensive skills or ball handling skills, but they're very good going in a straight line, jumping up and finishing against contact. And that's something that Brazdika struggles a little bit with. He has the craft to be able to compensate for that. And I think that's going to help him, but there's still going to be a little bit of a question of how translatable that is to the NBA level. Um, I'm also not super fond of his his vision with the ball in his hands. He's a guy who's going to get tunnel vision a little bit. He has just a 5.8 assist rate for the season, and that's obviously not great for a guy who is really one of Michigan's offensive hubs. But that could be a little bit his role, could be a little bit his lack of confidence in his handle, and I think that there's room for room to improve for him in that regard. But this is not a guy that I think has primary initiator or even really secondary initiator equity at the NBA level, just because I don't think that he's ever going to really have the vision to be able to be a consistent creator for others with the ball in his hands off of the dribble. So that's something to keep in mind projecting his offensive role. His, his ceiling is kind of capped by that lack of court vision and awareness Um, when he's attacking with the ball in his hands. He is a good ball mover off ball, which is important and does make good decisions there. It's just he's not going to be a guy who you can give the ball bringing up the the court and have him attack out of the pick and roll, I don't think. 
Defensively, he's kind of a he's kind of a paradox a little bit because Brazdikis doesn't have great athleticism, doesn't have great length, but still I think projects to be a positive defensive player at the NBA level. He compensates for his lack of athletic ability with the full package in terms of team defense. He has a very good motor. He competes well off the ball and does a really good job of of working to stay in front of guys who have the ball against him. He's a very good off-ball communicator, as everybody for Michigan is. That's one of the hallmarks of their top elite defense, is the fact that led by John Teske and Brazdikis on the wing, everybody communicates really well for them on the defensive end. And I think that Brazdikis is going to be a positive in that regard at the NBA level. He communicates screens, um, communicates switches really well, and I think that that's really important for his projection to the next level. His footwork is also very good. That's one of the ways that we've talked about before that you can compensate for a lack of athleticism. Um, if you have really good footwork, are light on your feet, and, and are efficient with your movement staying in front of guys, that's going to help you even if the, you're defending a quicker guy who's driving on you. And Brazdikis in particular does a really good job of staying in front of guys on the ball as they go through the pick and roll. And... And finally, I really like his defensive rebounding. He is he has a 16% defensive rebound rate, which for a guy who's 6'7 is, is pretty solid at the college level. I think he's going to project to being a positive at that point, and it's another play finishing thing that I think is going to help him, even though he's going to get exposed a, a little bit one-on-one, I think he can still be a positive player because he is such a strong defensive rebounder from the small forward position. He does a really good job boxing out, has really good instincts and really good hands, and that's all a positive kind uh, positive combination for him. The weaknesses are obviously the athleticism doesn't really do a good job of staying in front of guys that are really quick in terms of his ability to react to a quick burst off the dribble. He's not a leaper, so he's not going to be a guy who's going to be a shot blocker, I think, at all. Um, And I think he's really going to be limited in the types of guys he can guard on the defensive end uh, competently unless he's in like an advanced defensive system. He also doesn't really advance, um, really anticipate well. Um, when a guy gets the ball and he's kind of defending in isolation, he does a really good job of, of staying with guys when they kind of throw predictable moves at him, um, like simple crossovers and kind of straight line bursts he does pretty well with as long as the guy isn't too quick. Um, but you start throwing any advanced dribble moves at him and he can get kind of thrown off a little bit by that. So I think that's going to be something that could bother him at the NBA level. Level and that he really is going to have to work hard to, to stop against. But overall, I see him as a positive defensive player. I think that he's going to be a guy who has a role at the NBA level. And I think as we get into his projection, I think you can see a path to him being a positive on both ends um, for whatever team drafts him. Um, My projection for him, I think he's going to be mostly like a bench player or fringe starter in the league. I think that his best role is going to be as a scorer on bench units or as kind of like an accessory play finisher and starter lineups and he's going to be a guy who's going to deliver solid team defense at the NBA level even if it's only just at the three and four positions Um, he's not going to be a guy who's super switchable but I think can provide a role Um, 
in terms of outcomes, I think the spectrum is pretty pretty wide for him. Um, I think there's a chance that he's a guy who doesn't end up making the league. Um, I kind of put as a floor, and this is a cheap comparison. I hate doing this with guys who are from the same country um, because it's it's kind of just reductive a little bit, but. You know, Mindagas Kuzminskis, who played for the Knicks, um, is a European player who plays for Z- uh, played for Zalgaris, now plays for AX Milano in Italy. Um, he's a similar guy who I think could be like the floor for Brazdikas, a guy who does all the right things, has some really intriguing skills, but overall just doesn't have the athleticism or any elite skills that really help set him up to be a consistent um, consistent rotation player at the NBA level. Um, I think the most likely outcome for him, though, is probably going to be along the lines of like a TJ Warren. Um, Warren is the type of play finisher and um, solid but unspectacular defender that I think that you're expecting to get with Brazdikas. And there's a role for that guy. I think that you can get a guy who can average 12, 13, 14 points a game, may not give you a ton elsewhere on the offensive end, but really helps open things up for your other primary creators. I think that that can be valuable, especially if he's a guy coming off the bench. Um and I think that the ceiling outcome for Brazdikis, if the shot ends up translating really well and improving, if he ends up putting on a little bit more strength and developing a little bit more as a playmaker, I think there could be an opportunity for him, if he continues to improve, to be kind of like what Danilo Gallinari is this year for the Los Angeles Clippers. You know, Gallo doesn't have the elite athleticism that he did when he came into the league anymore, but he's still a productive player because he is so skilled on the offensive end and is so competent on the defensive end in terms of his decision-making that you know, he can be a positive on both ends and can be a primary or secondary scorer for a good team, even though he doesn't have like a ton of go-to tricks that are undefendable as, as you would expect like a Zion Williamson or a John Morant, the guys who are primary guys in this class to have. Um, so it's not a super inspiring spectrum, um, especially when you compare to some of the other guys who are kind of in this range. Um, but I think that that's a high likelihood of a rotation player coming from um, coming from his his potential outcomes. Even if it's not something super inspiring, I think he can at least be a productive bench scorer at the NBA level. Um, I like the fit on, of him on the Cavs. I think that he's a guy who can make life easier for the, the guys who are primaries for the Cavs already. Um, he's an easy outlet off the catch for Colin Sexton, who can be a floor spacer and offer up some easy shots at the rim for Sexton to be able to find. Um, love at the elbow, same thing. Jordan Clarkson, same thing. Just a guy who makes life a little bit easier for the guys who are driving the Cavs' offense. Um, he's a limited defender, but he's good in the area the Cavs need. I've I've talked before about his ability or the need that the Cavs have to find somebody who can kind of flip between defending the three and four to take pressure off of Chetty o- or Shetty Osman to uh, have him defending the four um, to take pressure off of um, the fives like Tristan Thompson from having to defend in space. I think that Brazdikas could be that type of guy. Um, and also there's the positive of he has flexibility. You know, his passport means that, 
he can be flexible with what the Cavs want to do with him. If they want to have him on the roster immediately, they've got a spot for him. If he can, or if they can want him to go to Canton for a year, he can probably stick down there and he can and spend a majority of his time there, and that can be helpful. Or if they don't, they run into a spot where they, you know, are making some free agent moves and they really need a roster spot for a year, they can go stash him in Europe, and he probably will be comfortable playing for, you know, maybe a team like Zalgaris or, or Leituvos Raitis at the top levels of Europe um, in Lithuania, and that could be a valuable development spot for him. So I think that that added flexibility that he gives just because of that could make him a valuable option from kind of like a cap perspective if they decide get into a situation where they have the opportunity to make some significant roster improvements elsewhere. So we'll take a break here. We'll come back. We'll uh, preview the NCAA tournament Sweet 16, um, go through every game, look for what to ma- what to watch for, and um, give you some viewing guide for this coming weekend. All right, so let's finish up talking about the Sweet 16 matchups. We're just going to run through in order of start time um, and talk about just some basic things to watch um, and whether or not you should watch these games from an NBA draft perspective. Start off with the first game that will be on Thursday night. That's the Thick Jack Frames Certified Game of the Tournament. That is Gonzaga and Florida State. Why is this our game of the tournament? Because it probably features the most thick jack frames on the court at one time. Gonzaga, you got Rui Hachimura, you got Brandon Clark, um, you've got Killing Tilly, even though he doesn't have a thick jack frame, he's still a big who's worth watching. Um, Philip Petrusev, another one. So plenty of guys to watch in Gonzaga's front court, and they're going to be thrown up against Devin Vassell, Chris Kumaji, Mufandu, Kabangeli. Plenty of guys on Florida State who are good athletes with really strong frames in the front court. So the front court matchup here is going to be much must watch. In particular, I'm going to be watching for Brandon Clark, seeing how he does finishing at the rim against Kabangeli and Kumaji. Um, I think that this is going to be a really difficult test for him as a finisher and also kind of in post defense. You know, they like to use or Florida State likes to use Cobbengele um, kind of in the mid post and and use him as an outlet guy. Um, so seeing how Clark does against him on both ends is going to be a really interesting matchup. I have Cobbengele kind of at the end of my top 60 right now, and I think that he could potentially kind of stake a claim to being drafted in this class with a really strong game. Next up, Purdue-Tennessee. Um, the the matchup to watch here, Grant Williams against uh, Matt Harms. If that ends up happening in the post, I think that it will. Um, getting to see kind of the 6'5", 6'6", Grant Williams matched up against the seven foot two Harms and how he deals with that is going to be really interesting. See how he does against the upper echelon in terms of length that he could end up fa- uh, facing in this game is going to be really important. Um Michigan-Texas Tech is going to probably be the best game to watch uh, of the Sweet 16 games just from a pure matchup perspective. Um, I like Gonzaga, Florida State, but Michigan-Texas Tech probably more valuable because it's going to pit the guy we talked about today, Brazdikis, against the guy we talked about last time in our prospect of the week, Jarrett Culver. Um, 
you know, Culver is really going to stress Brazdikis on the defensive end. How is he is the Lithuanian Canadian going to be able to match up with Culver's length and athleticism combination? one-on-one I think is going to be really interesting. Um, also, you got two elite defenses mat- matching up, and that's going to put some significant stress on the creators for these two teams. You know, Michigan is probably going to be able to throw multiple guys at Culver, and how is he going to deal with that? On the other end, which creator is going to step up for Michigan? They've kind of had like a, a three-headed monster in terms of who's creating a majority of their shots between Charles Matthews, Jordan Poole, and Xavier Simpson. Seems like it's a different guy every game um, and I think that this is going to be a really good matchup because Texas Tech has answers for all those guys we'll see which one ends up being the primary driver maybe it's Brazdikas even who knows um but that's going to be a really important game to watch. Watch that instead of Virginia-Oregon, which is the other game that's going to be going on at the same time. I would skip this game. Um, Lewis King against DeAndre Hunter might be interesting, but more than likely, this is going to be a typical Virginia 12-point win that feels like a 30-point blowout um, because I think that they're really going to have an easy time shutting down Oregon's offense. Moving on to Friday, you get LSU-Michigan State. Um, This game I would probably skip as well unless you like tiny point guards because you get Tremont Waters and Cassius Winston going against each other. Both those players are great college players, don't get me wrong, but no real draft intrigue um, between those two, and I'm not super high on anything else that's going to be going on matchup-wise in this game, even though it's got guys like Nas Reed and Darius Days that I think are going to be potentially draftable. I would instead pay attention to the UNC-Auburn game that will be going on at the same time. Big matchup here is going to be Kobe White. Um, Looking at how he does getting into the teeth of the Auburn defense, if he's going to be able to finish against all of the length that that team has, I think they're probably going to at some point throw... Anthony McElmore against Kobe White, and that's going to be really interesting. McElmore, a really good perimeter defender that I like, that I think is going to do a pretty good job locking down White potentially, even though White's much quicker. Um, It's also a matchup where we're going to see more stressful big wings for Nasir Little to struggle against. Um, Okeke is going to be a really tough matchup for him, um, as is McElmore, as is Bryce Brown. going to be really interesting to see what Nasir Whittle ends up doing if he plays that much at all in this game. Um, we go to the ACC matchup, which is Duke-Virginia Tech. Um, that game is going to be your 9 o'clock game on Friday night, um, so prime time there. Um, we've previewed this matchup before. They played twice already. Duke won both games um, but got good tests from Virginia Tech. I think the same matchup applies in terms of what you're watching here, and that's going to be looking at Nikhil Alexander-Walker of Virginia Tech and how he matches up with Duke's wings. Um, he's going to probably get plenty of possessions against R.J. Barrett, against Cam Reddish, and probably will get to play some against Trey Jones as well. And that's always going to be really interesting. In the first matchup, um, or in the one matchup these two teams played in the regular season, Alexander Walker did a really good job defensively against Barrett and Trey Jones, had four steals, um, and did a pretty good job as a playmaker, but struggled to get a lot of open looks, only shot one of five from three. Um, I'd like to see him perform a little bit better, um, particularly in matchups against Cam Reddish, and who definitely has an, an, or NBA length. I think that's going to be really important there. 
And then finally, your nightcap, Houston, Kentucky. Um, I did have a question in the Chase Down Discord app um, a, couple, a couple days ago asking about Corey Davis Jr. of Houston, a really good defensive guard. Um, I think that's kind of the only guy that I'm going to be watching in this game, watching how he matches up with Tyler Hero, see if Hero can keep up the strong play that he had in the first two games. Um, and I think that that's going to be the matchup to watch. But outside of that, I would skip this game too. Um, Kentucky probably not, or probably going to cruise against Houston. Um, but there's the chance that they don't, and that's going to be funny to see how that unwinds for them um, if that's the case. Um, so I would keep an eye on this, but focus on Duke. North or Duke Virginia Tech. So the four of the eight games, because they're all probably going to be played in pairs at the same time, um, that I would pay attention to: Gonzaga, Florida State, then Texas Tech or Michigan, Texas Tech on Thursday, Friday, UNC Auburn, and then Duke Virginia Tech. And you're going to come away with a pretty happy weekend if those are the games that you're watching. So that'll wrap us up for today. We'll get on out of here. Um, remember, you can find the podcast at Fear the Sword, um, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as well, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, keep an eye out for our other podcasts on the Fear the Sword podcast network as well. Um, best way to support us is to subscribe and leave a review, which helps more people find the podcast. You can also follow me at Illegal Screens on Twitter. That's the best place to send questions or topics that you want answered on the podcast. Look forward to the Sweet 16 and we eight this weekend and we'll be back next week to break it all down again and preview the final four.